God is omnipotent. He's not limited. He's not restricted. God can do anything. He can stop anything from happening in your life. So why doesn't He? That brings us to another point that we need to wrestle with. When we fear that God is impotent, we realize that God is omnipotent, not weak and without power, but rather all-powerful, holding all things in His hand. But notice this, when we fear that God is aloof, we must remember that God is perfectly loving. When we fear that God is aloof, not caring, off in the distance, He's not particularly attached to us or involved in our lives, but is, is detached. He's the cosmic watchmaker. He's made this, and it doesn't really matter to Him. We're just another bit of flotsam in the universe. He made all these things, and uh, okay, I'm going to make some people too. When we see God as aloof, we need to remember that He is perfectly loving. This comes from that, that thought that God doesn't care enough to do something about this. Uh, all these bad things are happening and God just doesn't seem to care. God doesn't really love me. Yeah, I know we say God, God is love and all that kind of stuff, but in our hearts we're easily convinced that He is not. That He is somehow just kind of kicking back in his cosmic easy chair saying, yeah, sorry kid, can't really help you. You're going to have to work this through on your own. There are bad parents in the world who allow their kids to struggle through life because they don't care. It's easy to confuse them with good parents who make sure that their kids struggle in life because they love them intimately, desperately. And they know that the only way for their children to become what they are meant to become is by struggling, by striking out, and sometimes falling and failing and getting hurt, letting loose of the bicycle, knowing that they could fall and scrape their knee, but knowing that at some point they have to letting them do their own homework. Helping, yes, but pushing them to be able to do it on their own because they need to grow. That's not an aloof parent. That's a loving parent who knows that there is a bigger picture and cares more about the child's development than about the moment. Mommy, Daddy, if you really loved me, you'd do this for me. You must hate me. You don't care anything about me. We can recognize the folly of that in a child to a parent. And yet so often we have those feelings toward God. Turn to Romans chapter 5. You still have Acts marked. It's just a little past that. Romans chapter 5. I'm going to start with verse 6. We're going to read verses 6 through 10, then we're going to jump to chapter 8. Paul writes, You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. While we were still powerless, Christ 
died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. In other words, someone who's good, we might respect them enough, we might care about someone who's good, but we would never die for an enemy, for someone who is wicked. People just don't do that. Verse 8, But God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by His blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through Him? While we were sinners, Christ died for us. Justifying, making us right with God through His blood, through His sacrifice. Now that that has happened, and we have received Christ, and we are in Christ, and we belong to Him, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through Him? For if, verse 10, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to Him through the death of His Son, how much more? How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through His life? Jump ahead to chapter 8, specifically verse 32. While you're turning, I'll read verse 31. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also along with Him graciously give us all things? When we fear that God is aloof, we must remember that God is perfectly loving in Matthew chapter 10, verses 29 to 31, we're told that two sparrows sold for a penny in the marketplace in front of the temple. Not one of them falls to the ground apart from the Father's knowledge. Jesus said, knowing that, don't be afraid, because you're worth more than many sparrows. It's almost a hint of sarcasm. Do you really think that there are enough sparrows to be worth you? And yet, even one individual sparrow does not hit the ground apart from God's knowledge, His ascent. How much more does He care about us? John 3.16 said that He loved the world so much, He gave His one and only Son, even as we just read, while we were still sinners. Even while we were still sinners, that's when Christ died for us. That's why Christ died for us. He loved us so much that He sent His only Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish. Have everlasting life. No, God is not aloof. Instead, He is perfectly, perfectly loving. We fear that He's impotent. We must realize that He's omnipotent. When we fear that He's aloof, we must remember that He's perfectly loving now, those are pretty easy for us to, to, to grasp. If you're a Christ follower and you've been in the church for a while and, and you've grown up in Sunday school maybe or you've been to a, through a lot of sermons, you've done some, some reading in the Scriptures, you know, okay, God is powerful. Got it. All right? might be hard for me to work that out, but, but mentally, I, I, okay, I'm, I'm down with that. I, I get that God is loving. I might have a hard time applying it because I, my picture of God comes from my father, comes from my husband comes from the people around me and, and I've been 
let down so often, it's hard for me to grasp this perfectly loving God. But at least I, I get that mentally, I can, I can understand that God is all-powerful and perfectly loving. But then we have this tendency to try to create an out for God. We, we have fears, and we, we think that God maybe doesn't care, that He's sitting back. But then when we get, begin to wrestle with the problem of pain, with the problem of evil in the world, and we juxtapose that with a sovereign God who holds everything in His hand, and this is one of the things that you'll see all over social media, all over the internet, trying to punch holes, so to speak, in the gospel and the truth of the scriptures. Don't allow your mind of flesh to overcome the reality that we see in the Spirit. We have a tendency then to try to justify God. To try to excuse God from culpability as we would see it where the world passes judgment on God as if He is unrighteous or unholy. How could a loving God allow such evil, allow such pain, allow the persecution of His church? If this God is all you say He is, He must be a wretched being. Notice this. When we excuse God as passive... We must recognize that God is proactive. When we excuse God as passive, we must recognize that God is proactive. We tend to make excuses and we think, we, we sort of theologize this stuff and say, God allows it, but He doesn't cause it. God would never do such a thing. You're right. A loving God could not do this. And yet, that's the exact opposite of what God says. Now don't get me wrong, there's a, a, a lot of delineation between God's declared will and God's decreed will and God's desired will. And theologians love to parse those words and get down into all sorts of little things. But the point I want us to see today is God doesn't need your excuses. God's not worried about whether you and I think that he is in good standing, whether you and I think that he is righteous and holy. The only person affected by my beliefs about God is me and the people I impact. Because God is who he is. Everything that is good and righteous and true is derivative of God's nature. It's a reflection of him. Our sense of justice and rightness comes from God's image in us. So the better we understand God, the better we can understand what true righteousness, what true justice, what true goodness is. But understand, we don't get to sit back and say, God has to answer to us. Remember, we're dealing with an all-powerful being. The only all-powerful being. When we excuse God as passive, we must recognize that God is proactive. God is not afraid to take responsibility. Let's go back to Job real quick. 
Some of you are still wondering where the book of Job was. You didn't find it last time. If you go to the middle of your Bible, somewhere in that neighborhood, you're going to find the book of Psalms. Right before that, you'll find the book of Job. The first in the section of Bible known as wisdom literature. When you go to Job, let's go to the very beginning. This is the part of the story that most of us are familiar with because usually we don't really read past chapter 2 and we just kind of skip. You know, we see all the, the action take place here. And the rest is sort of a, a, a conversation, a, a dialectic dialogue that takes place here as Job and his friends are debating his standing before God, the nature of God, the cause of his problems. So there's a lot of theology that gets thrown around and because we're lazy we tend to skip over that parts that you might be familiar with start out here in the first two chapters the beginning we see this picture starting with verse one starting with verse one we see this picture of who job is he's very wealthy he's very righteous he uh, is watching out for his children. He honors God at all times. And Satan comes before the throne of God. Now, whether this is a, a simply a proverbial story or a historic picture of something taking place in heaven that is revealed by God's Spirit, I don't know. I don't know that it's important to the point. But Satan comes before God and says... Let me take hold of Job. But if you'll notice, in the story, Satan's not the one who starts the conversation. Verse 8, the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. The Lord brings Job up to Satan. Verse 9, does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied, have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You've blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has. He will surely curse you to your, to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well, then everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself did not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. The same scene plays out again. Job remains upright. Notice in verse 21. Um, after all these things happened to him, Job says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. And all this Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. We see it play out again after this. As Job has not sinned, and God then has the same conversation with Satan. Satan says, yeah, he took his stuff, but you didn't, you didn't harm his body. God gives him permission to harm his body. Job then has bad health, boils, everything's gone wrong. Everything has gone wrong. He's lost his family, except for his wife who keeps encouraging him to curse God and die. He has lost his wealth, his reputation, his standing Lost his physical well-being, his health. Job does not depart from this mentality. God gave it. God took it. No matter what happens, praise God. In fact, in 
chapter 13, verse 15, he says, Though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. Yet will I praise him or trust him, depending on your translation. But my hope remains in God no matter what he does. Notice that there's a blending together throughout this of what God is allowing Satan to do. Satan says to God to do it. God gives Satan permission to do it. Job recognizes it all is from God's hand, the good and the bad, both from God. As though God slay me, yet will I hope in him. There is a blending together. And God never... At the end when he shows up, he never says, Job, I just want, I just want you to understand, you know, I didn't really do this. I just kind of let this happen because I, I was wanted to work this thing out for you, and, and it's good, but, but I, was, I was passive. It wasn't my fault. I didn't do it. He says, who do you think you are? Whether I did it or didn't do it. Is that your business? Who are you? You are the clay. I'm the potter. I do what I want. Oh boy, we, we kind of shy away from that. We don't want that kind of a, a God. We think that's arrogant. How dare he? How dare God? How dare God? What do we think we are? We could question our maker. But lest you think that God shies away from this, uh, let me just take you to another place. There are so many passages, but I just want to read a little bit. Isaiah 45, if you're in Job, turn to the right, not quite to the, <clears throat> to the uh, New Testament, but you're going to go past the Psalms and Proverbs. Isaiah is relatively easy to find because he's got a pretty big book. Why they call him a major prophet. The major prophets have bigger books. They are the prophets who love big books. I cannot lie. Isaiah 45. Now, Isaiah has a lot of prophecies of judgment against Israel and a lot of prophecies of what God will do in the future through Messiah to restore Israel. And he talks about what's going to happen at the end of time when the Son of Man, Daniel calls him the Son of Man, but when the Son of God, then this chosen one, the anointed one, the, the Messiah, the Christ, steps in and rules and establishes peace. But he also is telling Israel a lot about their personal judgment that they're going to face for not following God. God brings judgment and calamity on His own people for a purpose. Now in chapter 45, God says through Isaiah that He is going to raise up a pagan, godless king to do God's work to save His people. This king is named by name and isn't even born yet. Later, they say Cyrus reads this, sees his own name in the scriptures, is moved compassion toward Israel. I can't speak to the veracity of that, but I've read it in several sources, so I'm going to go with it. Starting in verse 1 of chapter 45, Isaiah writes, this is what the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of to subdue nations before him and to strip kings of their armor, to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. I will go before you, speaking to this Gentile pagan king Cyrus, 
I will go before you and will level the mountains. I will break down gates of bronze and cut through bars of iron. I will give you hidden treasures, riches stored in secret places, so that you may know that I am the Lord. Let me read that part again. So that you may know that I am the Lord, the God of Israel, who summons you by name. Now imagine, this is written before he's born. Imagine if you open up a book that calls itself prophecy and read your own name being spoken by God might have some impact on you. Verse 4, For the sake of Jacob, no, don't miss this part. For the sake of Jacob, for the sake of Jacob, my servant, of Israel, my chosen, I summon you by name. God is calling Cyrus for the sake of his people. God is bringing in this ungodly king to do his bidding for the sake of God's chosen people. For the sake of Jacob, my servant, and of Israel, my chosen, I summon you by name and bestow on you a title of honor, though you do not acknowledge me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. I will strengthen you, Cyrus, Gentile, who do not acknowledge me. I will strengthen you, though you have not acknowledged me, so that from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, People may know there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Pay close attention to verse 7. I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. You heavens above, rain down my righteousness. Let the clouds shower it down. Let the earth open wide. Let salvation spring up. Let righteousness flourish with it. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe to those who quarrel with their maker. Those who are nothing but potsherds among the potsherds on the ground. Does the clay say to the potter, what are you making? Does your work say the potter has no hands? Woe to the one who says to a father, what have you begotten? Or to a mother, what have you brought to birth? This is what the Lord says, the Holy One of Israel and its Maker, concerning the things to come. Do you question me about my children? Or give me orders about the work of my hands? It is I who made the earth and created mankind on it. My own hands stretched out the heavens. I marshaled their starry hosts. I will raise up Cyrus in my righteousness. I will make all his ways straight. He will build my city and set exiles free, but not for a price or reward, says the Lord Almighty. In other words, Cyrus won't have a monetary motivation. He's just going to do it, because God said so. Historically, that's exactly what ends up happening. God establishes the good and the bad, and he does not shy away from the causality of it. You can... Theologize it all the way you want. Put it in whatever little envelopes you need to sort it out in your mind, but recognize that God is not concerned with our excuses for Him. He doesn't need us to defend Him. When we excuse God as passive, we must recognize that God is proactive. Now, that very passage that we just read leads us to our last point. When we believe that God is reacting, we must understand that God is sovereign. When we believe that God is reacting, we must understand that God is sovereign. Not only is God not passive, just allowing Satan to do stuff, Satan is on a leash, he is restricted. What he does is what God has allowed, yes, but 
ultimately what God has chosen to ordain. Therefore, even the evil done against God, the attacks against God's people, the injustice in the world, is all something that God has put His stamp on to say, this will serve my ultimate purposes. Those things that bring more darkness and wickedness highlight the grace and holiness of God. You hear a lot of people talk about you know, a silver lining in every dark cloud. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the maker of the cloud. It's not trying to find some good in the bad. It's that God is using even the bad to do what He has already planned in the first place. It's always been Him. He is not reacting to Satan's ploys. Like when my dad and Jimmy were playing chess with me, they weren't reacting to what I was doing. They were causing what I was doing. I was making the moves, but only as they had already planned it. Because they had a bigger plan. God, as sovereign, has a bigger plan. We get this thought that you know Satan attacks, but God takes the devil's attacks and finds a way to turn it for our good. That's my one gripe with the song that we sang right before the sermon. Sovereign over us is a wonderful song, and I love everything about it except even what the enemy means for evil you turn it for our good it's taken from genesis 50 20 we're going to turn there in just a moment so if you want to head head start go ahead it's taken from this picture in genesis of god working through joseph we know the story of joseph and his technicolor dream coat if you will which completely guts the story of any theological significance. Great musical, terrible Bible story. The actual Bible story is God orchestrating events in Joseph's life for Joseph's good, for the good of the people, but ultimately for God's glory. And it's a picture of God's salvation in Christ and His preservation of the church. But when we see that, in, in the song that we sang, we often quote the, this verse this way. Satan meant it for evil, but God turned it around. God worked it out for me. God turned it for our good. Take a look at what it actually says. Genesis 50, 20. The last chapter of the first book of the Bible. <clears throat> so in the book of Genesis, God creates, he sees people rebel, not a surprise to him, this was always what he had, had planned, and as this goes along, we see him choose for himself a people, the people end up in Israel, and this is where we, where we find ourselves. Joseph has been sold into slavery by his brothers, everything that takes place here is is something that God had shown Joseph in a dream without understanding it fully at the time. Sold into slavery by his brothers. He becomes a very prominent slave because God is with him. He's framed for sexual assault by his boss's wife. He becomes a prisoner. 
And he excels and advances himself even as a prisoner because, again, God is with him. He interprets a dream for the Pharaoh, and Pharaoh puts him in charge of the entire nation to supervise their economy through a famine. So during the time of plenty, they store their goods, they store their grain, and while everybody else in the region is ravaged by this famine, Egypt has food to spare because God is with him. Eventually, Jacob's sons, Joseph's brothers, are sent to Egypt to get food because that's where the food is. They don't know that Joseph is there. They, For all they know, he's dead. They sold him off as a slave. They come, get the food. There's some, some fun... Uh, chicanery that goes on there. Ultimately, we come to this place at the end where Joseph reveals himself to his brothers. And they freak out. So they are starting, their father has has uh, died now. Uh, they have thrown themselves at their brother's feet. Starting with verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us? pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him. Logical thought, right? <clears throat> so they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. <clears throat> this is what you were to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came, threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. Makes sense, doesn't it? They sold him into slavery, left him for dead. Why wouldn't he exact vengeance? He's the second most powerful person in Egypt. By extension, essentially, the second most powerful person in their known world. We're your slaves. Joseph said to them in verse 19, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Notice verse 20. I want you to specifically pay attention to the words. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. To accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then be afraid, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. He reassured them and spoke kindly to them. You intended, but God intended. It doesn't say that they did this evil thing, but God made it work out somehow. God turned it for our good. What the enemy meant for evil, God meant for good before the enemy ever even meant it for evil. God, in His sovereignty, holds all of it in His hand. And he is working it all for the good. Somehow taking those circumstances, life gave, gave God lemons, so he made spiritual lemonade for us. Not that. Anything but that. God is the source of all things. When we believe that God is reacting. We must understand that God is sovereign. Romans 8.28 is our 
memory verse for today. I would encourage you to read Romans 8. You don't have to turn there right now for the sake of time. Romans 8.28 says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. God's not reacting. He's the King. He's the Sovereign. God is determining. He is deciding. He is acting decisively, efficaciously, on our behalf to do something better, bigger, greater, more eternal, more glorious than any evil or wickedness we could find on this planet in this temporal life. God is working out even through the things that are offensive to Him, that belittle Him, which is the nature of sin. God even then is using those very things to accomplish His own purposes. What the devil intends as a weapon, God has ordained as a tool. Closing thoughts. Our Father God is sovereign over all things. Whatever it is that we're facing. Coronavirus, persecution, death. It doesn't matter. God is bigger. When He leads us through hard places, His love never wavers. It never fails. Every hard thing, even the evil things done against God, serve God's loving purposes for His children. He's not sitting back watching. He is involved. God's love for us is a hands dirty, in it with you, planning and working out something bigger than you ever dreamed kind of love. None of it catches the sovereign of all things by surprise. What the devil intends as a weapon, God has ordained as a tool. He holds it all in his hand, causing all of it to work together for our good and his glory. Let's pray. Father God, you are actively working everything for our good. There's no part of it that is foreign to you, that is outside of you, that is a surprise to you. There's nothing that you have to react to because you are the source of everything. Father, help us to recognize that the same sovereign God, the same sovereignty that could stop this pandemic and actively chooses not to that could have prevented the persecution of the church in Jerusalem or today around the world and actively chooses not to the same sovereignty that is choosing our best over what we perceive as our best It's the same sovereignty that sustains us. Drive that deep into our minds, to our hearts. Father, we just want to rest in you. Remind us that while we exist for you and not the other way around, 
Your love for us is great and unfailing. Pray these things in the name of your precious Son who gave everything for us. Amen.